Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The White Rose was a name given to a resistance circle at the University of Munich in the early 1940s. It's a name that has become synonymous with resistance. Its members were made up of largely young students, including the famous Hans and Sophie Scholl, and they risked their lives to secretly write and distribute anti-Nazi pamphlets. In fact, ultimately, it was a cause to which they would give their life, as by 1943 all members of the White Rose would be dead. I'm your host, James Rogers. This is the Warfare Podcast. And to learn more about these brave and defiant young people, I'm joined by Dr. Alexandra Lloyd from Oxford University. Alexandra is the author of a new book called Defying Hitler, The White Rose Pamphlets. And that's published by Oxford University Press and is out now. Now, the great thing about talking with Alexandra is that she is a true expert on this topic, and she can help us to understand the more nuanced, deeper things that we need to get into to find out why this group formed, how their bravery really pushed them forward to defy Hitler, and also how they initially remained secret, and ultimately how they were found out and put to death. So here is Alexandra Lloyd on Defying Hitler. Hi, Alexandra. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? Hi, it's great to be here. I'm doing well. The sun's shining in Oxford, finally. The sun is shining in Oxford. That is amazing. Well, we're going to be talking about resistance. And this year marks the 80th anniversary of the first pamphlets of the White Rose Resistance Circle against Nazism during the Second World War. And at this point of recording, it really is quite a fascinating time to talk about resistance as the people of Ukraine rise up and mount multiple forms of resistance from publications, from social media resistance, people in Russia being imprisoned for their protests on live TV, and of course those who are also launching their own publications in resistance. And so this history is really pertinent and important in helping us to frame that. So take us back all the way over those eight decades and tell us who were the White Rose Resistance Circle. So the White Rose was, in some senses, quite a wide network of individuals, but really at its heart, there were five students and an academic in Munich. And essentially what they did was to see the evil inherent in Nazism, to see that someone had to say something, someone had to take some action. And so the action that they took 
was to write this series of resistance pamphlets. They secretly wrote them, they typed them up on a Remington portable typewriter, they printed them, and they disseminated them at huge risk in order to try and get the readers to open their eyes, to recognise the atrocities going on around them, and ultimately to engage in some form of resistance. Now, we'll go into the content of that resistance very soon, but I want to talk more about these people, because how is it that people of a a political persuasion, both students and professors, are able to come together at this time of great danger and peril for them? Were they friends beforehand? How did they know that they could trust each other? Yeah, this is one of the most, I think, most interesting questions about the White Rose. You know, why was it that they were able to sort of see these things clearly when so many people couldn't or wouldn't. There are sort of lots of answers to this. I mean, one answer is that they were all incredibly interested in literature, music, art, philosophy. They read a huge amount. They not only read, but they discussed that reading with each other. They would meet with kind of academics. They would meet with sort of what are often referred to in the literature as kind of older mentors. So these were people in their kind of 40s, 50s, 60s who were not supporters of Nazism, but who were around in Munich. And they would talk to them. They would share ideas with them. So there was a lot of kind of like quite intellectual thinking that was going on. And I think that's partly what gets them to the point that they get to in June 1942 of saying, okay, not only do we sort of know that this is wrong, we have an intellectual sense that this is wrong, but we also have a kind of sense that, okay, we could do something. And what we could do is to use those intellectual skills to write something, to say something in what to begin with is a fairly complicated way. I mean, a lot of the time when I talk to say school pupils about the white rose and we talk about the pamphlets and if I show them a little bit of the pamphlets there's usually a question of kind of you know why didn't they just write some slogans why didn't they just do a kind of twitter sized shout out why is it so complicated and I think it's precisely because they go through this kind of intellectual process National socialism cannot be confronted intellectually because it is not intellectual. It is wrong to speak of a national socialist worldview because if such a thing existed, it would need to be proved or challenged by intellectual means. Yet in reality, we are presented with a completely different picture. Even in its earliest embryonic form, this movement was dependent on deceiving the German people. Even then, it was rotten to the very core and could only save itself through ceaseless deception. Who among us can foresee the extent of the infamy that will be on us and on our children, when the veil is one day lifted from our eyes and the most horrific crimes, crimes beyond all measure, come to light? We urge you to transcribe this pamphlet, make as many copies as you can, and distribute them. So 
So they're inspired by an older generation who themselves must have been very much inspired or perhaps chipped away at in terms of their morals and their intellectual way of thinking from the previous war, the First World War. Is this something that we see as an inspiration within the White Rose pamphlets? Yeah, so there are a couple of references to 1918. And I think a very strong sense that that terrible defeat for Germany is going to come again. There's going to be another moment of defeat for Germany. Although that is ultimately what the White Rose are calling for. They want the war to end because they've been part of it, because they see how awful it is. But I think the other thing is, I mean, there's certainly that influence from the older generation. But also, I mean, the student members of the White Rose have all grown up under Nazism. They've all been part of its structures. They've all been subject in different ways to its attempts to indoctrinate and control So it's interesting, there's this kind of harking back to a previous generation's experiences and cultural memories, but also the effect of growing up post-Hitler. You see, that's really interesting. So what sort of age are we talking here amongst the youngest members of the group? So the youngest member of the group was Sophie Scholl, who was 21 in 1943 when she was executed. All the students were in their early 20s. What that means, though is that their entire formative years have been under Nazism. They've been raised under Nazi education regimes, but potentially are just about old enough to slightly remember a world before Nazism. Yeah, and not all of them were indoctrinated into those Nazi structures. So Hans Scholl, Sophie Scholl, Christoph Probst, three members, student members of the group, they were all in the Hitler Youth. In fact, Hans Scholl joining the Hitler Youth was basically teenage rebellion against his father, who was an anti-fascist. Other members of the group were not so enthralled by Nazism. So Alexander Schmorell was half Russian. So for him, the sort of Nazi anti-Soviet rhetoric was just totally unbelievable. So he entirely saw through that rhetoric and the demand to be part of that. And Willy Graf was a very devout young Catholic. And again, you know, when the Nazis seize power and when they eliminate any kind of youth group that is not the Hitler Youth, again, for someone like Willy Graf, that's an attack precisely on his crew, on his space. And so again, you know, you have some of them that are being indoctrinated, but then somehow come to see through it. And then you have others who really, from a very early age, actually see that this is not right and that this is an attack on their freedom at some level. So they meet in secret and they decide that pamphlets are the way to go in order to get their message across and try and form some sort of resistance, potentially inspiring a broader social resistance. So what are the key messages, the cultural touchstones, the key points that they aim to put across within their pamphlets to try and persuade people that Nazism is not the way forwards? So one of the most often repeated words in the whole history of the White Rose, and it's also there in the pamphlets, is the word freedom. They call for freedom. We can understand that freedom in different ways, but I think principally freedom from the yoke of Nazism, freedom for the German people. Fellow students, 
Our goal is true scholarship and real freedom of the mind. There is no threat that can deter us, not even the closure of our universities. It is the duty of each and every one of us to fight for our future, our freedom and honor in a political system conscious of its own moral responsibility. Freedom and honor! They speak a good deal of conscience, so they're really trying to appeal to individuals' own conscience. They talk a lot about Germans needing to open their eyes. So there's a really strong kind of rhetoric of enlightenment. And again, a very kind of enlightenment rhetoric of Germans really needing to cast off, I think they said, the cast off the mantle of indifference that shrouds your heart. So there's this really strong sense that for the White Rose, for the authors of the pamphlets, Germans are almost complicit in their sort of oppression by Nazism. It's interesting, I've been reading the pamphlets with a group of students this year, and it's interesting reading them through the eyes of contemporary students. And for the students this year, it's been interesting, they found so many contradictions in these texts. And often I kind of put that down to the fact that they were written in wartime, they were written by students, and, you know, I say very humbly, but very authentically as someone who's marked a lot of undergraduate essays, it's not always perfect first time. And so there is this sense in which the texts are very urgent, they're very passionate, but they are speaking to Germans as Germans, asking them to do something, asking them to recognise what's going on, asking them to act. Well, to start with, they call on German cultural greats. So we have in the first four pamphlets quotations from other sources. So the White Rose set out their stall, they tell you what you need to know, and then they'll bung in a couple of hearty quotations from another source. One of the ways that this seems to be working is it's not quite the sort of undergraduate essay model of, well, if you don't believe me, you'll believe this person who's been published. But I think there's also a sense in which they're very seriously trying to engage people at a deeper level. They're trying to engage Germans to think about what it means to be German, to be a cultured nation. And so they begin by quoting Goethe and Schiller, these kind of totemic German writers. Then they reach for ancient Chinese philosophy. They reach for the Old Testament, so there's a kind of diversity in those references, as well as, you know, taking German greats and using them to support what they're saying and also to find a way in, I think. Goethe speaks of the Germans as a tragic people, much like the Jews or the Greeks. But these days they seem more like a shallow, spineless herd of mindless followers whose substance has been sucked out of them from within and who, robbed of their very core, allow themselves to be baited into their own demise. Friedrich Schiller says in The Legislation of Lycurgus and Solon, The state of Lycurgus could only subsist under one condition. The spirit of the nation would have to stand still and to ensure its continued existence would therefore mean to neglect the highest and the sole aim of a state.
ancient history fans, this is our moment. Over on the Ancients podcast, twice every week, we release new episodes covering topics dedicated to our distant past. Check out the Ancients on History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Russell Crowe, we're still interested. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So it's almost like using the heavyweights of history to give your young fledgling movement some sort of legitimacy. And we've seen this in Russia and with Ukraine as well. We've seen Tolstoy quoted over and over again in terms of resistance, harking back to a potentially, I don't know, more of a better time, a morally informed time, a time of greatness. Is this what they were trying to do with Germany as well? But there's almost a weird parallel between a a Nazi propaganda that is doing this for a right-wing cause and to create difference between people, and then that being countered with a similarly potent emotional form of, I don't want to say propaganda, but information to try and persuade people that that isn't the way forwards and that there is an alternative. Is that a fair way of describing it? I think so. It's like a kind of reclaiming reclaiming these people like Goethe and Schiller, who have been, from the White Rose's perspective, exploited by fascism, reclaiming those things and putting them to, again, what for the White Rose would be a better use. They're also differentiating to an extent between the sort of national community of Germans in Nazi rhetoric and what they call the Kulturvolk, the sort of cultured nation. So the kind of good Germany the Germany of Goethe and Schiller, the Germany of the Enlightenment. 
and trying to reclaim that. I think there is a strong sense of that. So it's a battle over the national mind and the national soul. So who is it specifically that they're aiming at here? We say Germans, national Germans, of course, but is this also other students as well? It's really interesting. So the pamphlets themselves are quite difficult to read. And there was, in early 1943, a Gestapo commission to investigate the White Rose movement. And as part of that, a university professor was tasked with writing a sort of philological analysis of the pamphlets. And I think the idea was he'll analyse them and then from that they'll be able to extrapolate various characteristics of the authors and they could use that in their investigation. And we have this report that was written by this academic in German. I'm not aware that it's been translated yet. But one of the things that is said in that report is that the pamphlets won't gain any kind of traction with soldiers and workers. So this interpretation very strongly is suggesting that these are pamphlets by intellectuals for intellectuals, that it's quite dense text to battle through. The references they're using are not pithy. The Goethe and Schiller that they use are not, as it were, mainstream. These are not the famous bits of Goethe that you've heard of. This is fairly obscure stuff. And so I think that the pamphlets certainly were, they were doing two things. I think they were a way of the White Rose students, initially the students who wrote them, kind of working things out, working out where they were, what they did think, and trying to speak to an audience, really as wide an audience as possible. But I think practically, they were going to be relying on people, A, reading the whole thing. This was two sides of A4, fairly densely typed, in the case of the first four pamphlets. So in terms of their audience, it's very difficult with the White Rose ever to pin down specifics like this, because of course they didn't really write about what they were doing. But I think we have a good sense that they wanted their audience to be wide. They posted the pamphlets out to all sorts of people. So they were distributed up into Hamburg, over into Austria, over towards the Saarland. So they had a wide distribution. Again, it's really, I mean, scholars are divided as to really how many copies were made. There are kind of multiple estimates. Are we talking hundreds? Are we talking thousands, tens of thousands? Is there a network of people that are posting these in the cover of darkness through people's doors? Or is it just the six of them that are trying their very best to do what they can to resist? Yeah, so initially it's a very small group doing this and then it kind of gets picked up by other groups across the country. I think the estimate is something like 100 copies of each of the first four pamphlets. And then they get a new duplicating machine for the latter ones. And so they are actually physically able to make more. But of course, they're battling with the fact that it's wartime and therefore there are shortages. You can't just go into the post office and ask for 100 stamps because you might look vaguely suspicious. So there are all sorts of logistical problems getting in the way of mass distribution. And also when people get them, they're not supposed to have them. So their duty is to immediately hand this thing in. And of course, you know, you would feel absolutely terrified, I would have thought, if something like this was posted through your door because of the implications 
you know, what that might suggest about you and why you had been sent this particular thing. There's a reference in one of the pamphlets, I think number four, where the White Rose assure their readers that the addresses that they've used to post out the leaflets were taken at random, that this is not a kind of network that's drawing specifically on people who are dissidents, say. And is that true or were they just covering their own back? No, I think that is true. I think they were doing it like that. So how effective were they in getting their message across and inspiring people to resist? Well, this is one of the really difficult bits about the White Rose, because ultimately they called for an end to the war. The war didn't end, wouldn't end for another two years. They called for mass resistance against Nazism. That didn't happen. There was not, you know, as some involved hoped, there was not a mass student protest. So in material terms, it's very hard to say that the White Rose achieved what they set out to do. I think what we would more readily say is that they become extremely important after the war. It matters, as it were, with hindsight, that they did what they did. That matters more, or it achieves more, than they actually did this campaign. You know, they didn't produce the pamphlets, and the pamphlets inspired 3,000 people to protest. We can't say that that happened. But they become martyrs of resistance. And to some extent, do they help a very divided Germany heal in the aftermath of the war to show that there were those that did seek to bring down Nazism? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting. They get sort of commemorated on both sides of the wall, which I remember being very surprised at when I was first working on this material Surprising in a sense, because they were very middle class. In German, they're very bürgerlich. They are very much middle class, bourgeois young people, which doesn't make them great poster children for post-war Soviet Russia. But nevertheless, they become inspiring figures very quickly, very quickly indeed, and they endure. I mean, in Germany, the names Hans and Sophie Scholl are known by everyone, I would say, and... I think the majority of schools that are named after something in Germany are the Scholl sibling school. So it's a really popular school name. So they're very well known figures. And I think in part because they do provide a model for resistance that although it wasn't taken up, although it wasn't widespread, it did happen. And it matters for the way that Germany in the post-war period understands itself and sees itself. It mattered that they did exist, that that did happen. I mean, they were incredibly brave at that period of time. I mean, there is no greater time of danger, perhaps, in the entire war to be operating than that point in 1941 and 1942. So what do we know about their conscious understanding of the risks that befall them? Did they know they were risking their lives? And then, I suppose, how were they found out? I think they did know that they were risking their lives. I don't think for a minute they could not have understood that. They were incredibly clever people. They knew what was what. But I think, and this is not to denigrate them at all, they were very young. And I think their youthfulness is a tremendously important part of why they do what they do and why they dare to do what they do. So there's that. They are found out in what is an incredibly dramatic 
series of events. So in February 1943, what will be the final printed pamphlet is produced. On Wednesday the 17th of February 1943, the students are printing the pamphlet. They run out of envelopes and they come up with a plan that Hans Scholl will go the following day to the main university building and will distribute the pamphlet. Sophie Scholl elects to go with him. And so the following morning, Thursday the 18th of February, they get up, they go to the university with a briefcase and a suitcase full of copies of the pamphlets. They go into the university, they leave them all around the sort of entrances to the lecture theatres all around the main university building. They are about to leave and their plan was, I think, a very, I mean, it was very dangerous but it was also a great plan and it was timed really to the minute. So the idea was that they would go into the main building just before the sort of lecture changeover time. So they would be in there while the building was empty. They'd put the pamphlets out and then just as they were about to leave, the lectures would end and all these students would start pouring out of the lecture halls and the classrooms and they'd just be able to kind of disappear into the crowd and they'd get away. And of course, if you're writing resistance pamphlets against a totalitarian regime, putting them in your own university where you are studying is incredibly high risk, incredibly dangerous. But they have this plan and the plan may have worked, but for some reason, and this is a reason that's really kind of lost to history, Sophie Scholl decides to push one of these piles of pamphlets over the balustrade and the various pieces of paper kind of fall down into the empty hall below. And that's the moment at which she and Hans are spotted by the university caretaker, who does his job and apprehends them. The Gestapo are called, the authorities are called, Hans and Sophie are taken away. And that's really where the kind of ball begins to roll. And they're arrested. That night, Willy Graf is arrested. A couple of days later, Christoph Probst is arrested. By the following Saturday, Kurt Huber and Alexander Schmorell will also have been arrested. So really within a space of 10 days, that entire core group has been rounded up and indeed three of them executed. So Hans and Sophie are arrested Thursday, Christoph arrested Saturday, Monday morning, nine o'clock, they go to trial, five o'clock that evening, they're guillotined. And to what extent are we talking about any semblance of a normal trial here? Are we talking quick in out, sentence, guillotine. Yeah. The trial starts at nine. By one, it's over. These are three young people accused of treason, accused of getting in the way of the war effort. This is not a trial that is seeking for truth. The judge at the trial was nicknamed Raving Roland, which really tells you a lot about how just this was. Justice was, if we can call it that, which we can't, swift. And the executions were swift. I mean, it is astonishing, astonishingly quick between the trial ending and them being executed. But we've glossed over one point here. You've mentioned that they were killed by guillotine. Is there a reason for that? Is there a symbolic reason? It it seems like a very archaic way to execute somebody at this period of time. My understanding is that the guillotine was standard, I certainly know that other resistance 
fighters were guillotined. So I think you had Rebecca Donner on the podcast a little while ago talking about her book about Mildred Fishharnack. And Mildred Fishharnack was executed, I think, two days before the Shoals distributed the pamphlets in the university, and she also was executed by guillotine. So this was just the way in which you punish those for resistance and perhaps sends a message out there that if you do the same, then you will meet that very same fate. So as we move forwards through history, and you've mentioned also about their post-war legacy, but it does bring us right back up to date, because most recently in the last few months, we've had letters that have been published by universities in Russia, perhaps most obviously from Moscow State University, by students and by scholars as well, denouncing the war, these open letters, which in themselves are incredibly risky. Do you think that these figures that we go back to, the White Rose Circle, do you think they still inspire people to resist today? I hope so. I think it's very easy not to do anything. It's very easy not to put one's neck on the line, to stand up for what one believes in. And the White Rose is ultimately, with all its flaws, and they did have flaws, and that's almost what makes them more inspiring, These were not saints, they were real people who lived real lives, but ultimately they recognised injustice and suffering. They felt tremendous compassion for people that were suffering under fascism and chose to do something about it. And I think that is something that can inspire us to take action and to shake us out of merely being comfortable. There was that moment that you said about Sophie Scholl pushing this stack of papers over the edge of the balcony across the lecture theatre, and it gave me goosebumps because we can all see ourselves in that moment. You've got that passion to resist. You want to get that message out to as many people as possible. You have that raw, untamed energy just to push them over the edge and see them fall and hope that students pick them up and join your resistance. One of the things that fascinates me about your work, Alexandra, is when you work with students today in universities and in schools are they inspired in the same way are they able to relate in the same way in terms of that very moment and in terms of the cause I think so I mean one of the things that I found very moving and enlightening about working on this material with students is that I think that they sometimes express a feeling that society has written off their generation that, you know, when we talk about snowflakes and we talk about students as being, you know, paying all this money for their university and being consumers of education, I think there is a kind of sense at the moment in the way that sometimes students are talked about that they are very passive, that they are not the kind of student activists that we idealise from the 60s, the 70s. And I think it's heartening for them to read about stories like this. I think it's also fascinating to see them drawing parallels. There have been a lot of discussions that we've had and that we've had in the kind of outreach work that we do with schools about, for example, the climate crisis and about young people's climate activism. And I wouldn't be the first person to draw a parallel between Sophie Scholl and Greta Thunberg 
but for students studying this material, that is an obvious reference point. And so I think that there are things about this story and about the White Rose that specifically for students are very inspiring. Well, Alexandra, thank you so much for your time and for taking us through this history, which is perhaps more relevant today than it has been for a very long time. Please tell us, where can people read more about this? Where can people buy the book? The book is on sale in all good bookstores. It's called Defying Hitler, The White Rose Pamphlets, published by Bodleian Library Publishing. Alexandra, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for listening, but before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.